Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Please don't forget, we have a year-end fundraising campaign on with a, a matching grant from a generous donor. If you uh, donate a buck, he'll match it for a buck. If you donate monthly, he'll multiply it times 12 and up to 10,000 bucks. Uh, so if you haven't donated already or if you want to raise your monthly, now's a good time to do it. President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet and senior team is taking shape, and so far it looks a lot more like Barack than Bernie. In fact, it doesn't look like Sanders at all. That shouldn't be a surprise, but some of the appointments seem downright meant to send a dismissive message to the Sanders AOC camp. Looking at the stock markets, Wall Street seems pleased. Two key economic posts went to people who are more or less on the opposite side of the Democratic Party from Sanders. Neera Tandon, the president of the Center for American Progress, will be the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Matt Taibbi writes that Sanders is the ranking member and perhaps future chair of the Senate Budget Committee. Every time Bernie even thinks about doing committee business, he'll be looking up at Neera Tandon. David Sirota writes, she is the single biggest, most aggressive Bernie Sanders critic in the United States of America. BlackRock veteran Brian Deese will serve as chief economic advisor as head of the National Economic Council. BlackRock is the largest asset management company in the world with over $7 trillion under management. And together with a few other large asset management companies, vote the shares that control 90% of the S&P 500. They don't run these companies, but they sure get to say who does. Tandon and Deese will be two of the strongest voices advising Biden on his economic policies. All this as the COVID pandemic spreads out of control across much of the country and the world, and tens of thousands sink into poverty or deeper poverty. Now joining us are Rana Faruhar, who is a business columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times. She's also CNN's global economic analyst. Her books include Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of the American Business, and Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles. And Mark Blythe, he's a political economist at Brown University. He researches the cause of stability and change in the economy, and as he says, why people continue to believe stupid economic ideas despite buckets of evidence to the contrary. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. So, Mark, why don't you kick off with what you make of these, uh, especially these two appointments that I mentioned, and, and what it means to the progressives who, who really mostly, including Bernie and AOC and others, fought very hard to elect Biden and now seem to be more or less out in the cold. I'd actually like to hand this one off to Rana, to be perfectly frank. I think she knows a little bit more about the people involved than I do. And honestly, I just want to hear what she thinks about this before I opine anything. <laughs> All right. Well, I feel I'm being set up somehow here, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Um, you know, I'm not as pessimistic as some people on the left would be about these appointments. And I'll tell you why. Let me, let me start with Janet Yellen who I actually know pretty well and uh, and really trust. Now, now Janet is a middle-of-the-road person in the sense that, yeah, she's a labor economist. She's 
uh, certainly shown herself willing to go to the mat for working people. You know, she kept rates pretty low during uh, in the wake of the great financial crisis, in part because she wanted to try and raise um, up uh, and, and help the fight for 15, actually, at the bottom. Of course, the risk is that you brew up asset bubbles, and that's always the line that the Fed uh, has to watch. I think at Treasury, it's going to be interesting to see if she's able to use stimulus, and that's a whole other topic, whether we can get any stimulus through, if she's able to use that, how she uses it and how she works with the Fed um, to make sure that that money starts to get to the right places. And that's where I think that you're going to see some use of her uh, chair role at the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Committee, which you know, Trump basically ravaged. I mean, he got rid of the Office of Financial Research. He rolled back whatever Dodd-Frank regulation he can, he could. Um, Yellen can now do something very different. And there are other appointees, people like Gary Gensler, who's currently the, uh, he used to be the head of the CFTC under Obama, very tough cop on, on banks. Um, you know, he could get SEC, let's say. You could start getting some strong regulators in and you might see a Biden administration redo of what Trump did with executive orders and rulemaking. Now, I'm getting a little wonky, but I want to set that stage because I think that that really matters. If you get a strong Treasury secretary with a bunch of strong regulators underneath her. Now, let's go to some of the other appointments. Um, Neera Tandon. Neera Tandon is... Um, I would certainly say problematic for the left. I mean, she's very corporatist Democrat, very middle of the road, very Clintonian, but she may also be a sacrificial lamb. You know, I think it's fascinating that she's going to face um, a tough time from Republicans who don't like the fact that she was such a vocal critic of Trump, but also a tough time from the Sanders Warren wing of the party who don't like the fact that she's a Clintonian Democrat. So wouldn't it be interesting if her name had been put out there as a sort of an appeasement and then she doesn't end up getting confirmed? That could that could well happen. And then who would be in that position? And, and an appeasement an appeasement to who? Appeasement maybe to the progressive wing. I mean, maybe you'll get in somebody different uh, uh, that is a little, little lower profile, um, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more pro-labor. I mean, Nira was going to get a top job. She was going to get at least a nod for a top job. There's no way. I mean, she represents the money wing of the party. Is she going to get confirmed? I don't know. I am pretty pleased, I'll be honest, with Heather Boucher in particular and Jared Bernstein. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, Bernstein in particular has has uh, uh, experienced something the Obama administration, but these are people that fight for, for the working class, and I think that they're going to do that. Um, BlackRock, ugh, you know, <laughs> maybe I'll leave Mark to take that one on. I mean, that whole BlackRock ESG thing, you know, I'll re I remember, two, was it two or three years ago that Larry Fink at Davos said, we're going to, we're going to grade companies on things aside from their share price. And then all the companies got kind of excited and nervous and said, well, what will we be graded on? He's like, uh, we don't know, but we're going to get back to you on that. And then they've been working on this. Presumably that's been Deese's job for the last two or three years. I don't know what the metrics are. I mean, do you, Mark? 
I no, I don't think anyone does. And in fact, it's actually really hard to do those metrics if you are going to do them seriously, which is what the Bank of England is trying to do at the moment. Um, so to me, it was just an onion headline. I mean, it was perfect. So Biden appoints BlackRock to think about economy on behalf of little people. Right. I mean, that, that's basically the onion headline that was written on that one. Um, I'm glad that you know much more about these people and more, know them, know these people more than than I do. I agree with you on Boucher and uh, and uh, Jared Bernstein. I think they're really, really crucial appointments. Also, a shout out. I think it's gone through for uh, Mesra Bahadran as well. I believe that that's the case. So yeah, there are progressives in there. But again, it's a question of well, what do people expect? I mean, remember the phone call at the end of the election whereby the Georgia people were screaming at the progressives and the progressives were screaming at the Georgia people. If you ever say socialism again, we're going to die. Look what happened in Miami. The progressives turn around and say, if it wasn't for our foot soldiers, you would never have got anywhere in Arizona. You would never have got anywhere in Georgia. You would never have got anywhere in Michigan. And both of those things are simultaneously true. So you have a party which is basically trying to kind of square that. Now, the way that humans normally square two irreconcilable truths is called hypocrisy. <laughs> that's what we do. That's the institutional thing we do when we go, well, that's true and that's true. What do we do now? Ah, shit, let's make something up, right? And the Democrats, unfortunately, find themselves in a position of structural hypocrisy. Now, that means that you either kind of give the right wing of the party some things and you give the left wing some things, whatever. And I guess that's what they're trying to do. But, you know, what's the counterfactual? That basically we're going to jeopardize uh, Warren's position in the Senate uh, Mm -hmm. at a time when the Senate balance is very crucial. And we'll make her Treasury Secretary just to make sure she doesn't get confirmed. Right. Right. I mean, what would be the point in doing this? So I think that they're really between a rock and a hard place. Hopefully not a black rock and a hard place. Boom, boom. (laughs) Um, but I mean, that's the one that really did shock me. I mean, honestly, my, my grading on this for like, you know, things is like how close to an onion headline is it? and that was an onion headline. So, um, well, the, de- the, the, de- the deputy secretary that just was announced today is also a former black rocker. Yeah, but it's a bit, it's a, but it's a bit like Goldman 10, 15 years ago when everybody figured out the revolving door, right? I mean, there is this talent pool problem. So Democrats recruit from the Ivies and finance. And really bright people from the IVs who didn't want to be professors or lawyers 25, 30 years ago all went into finance. They know where the money is, and then they go to work for the Democrats. That was non-problematic until 2008. Goldman has fallen out of favor. Now it's mm. these big asset managers, right? Mm. And, you know, to turn to uh, to the appointment of Tandron uh, for a moment, I believe it's still the case that the conference room on the top of the Center for American Progress is called the Eric Schmidt Conference Room. <laughs> I'm sure so, you know, I would say there's a bit of an indicator in that one about what's going on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, those people are part of the party. Those people raise money. Those people spend money on behalf of the party. They have a stake in it, too. And they get their bit, I guess. It's just, you know, unfortunate when the Onion headline becomes the reality. I think the thing with Tandon is she was so aggressive against Sanders. that There's other people that uh, usher in money to the party that could have been selected, but she has such uh, identification with being the attack dog on Sanders that it seemed rather provocative. But why not? But if you think she's not going to actually get confirmed, then why not put her up? It's perfect. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm no that you may have a point there. I agree. If if that's if that's her fate, then maybe she is a she's a bone in that way, because exactly. apparently the Repub- Republicans hate her as well. 
Yeah, exactly. No, I think she may have just been this sort of weird sacrificial lamb. I mean, it, it is kind of hard to imagine Biden being that cagey, but maybe Jake Sullivan is. Who knows? Mm. Well, maybe the overriding issue here is obviously the pandemic. Uh, the, the COVID crisis is getting worse. The economy is starting to close down again. Uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people that have never been in poverty are sinking into poverty. And of course, if you were in poverty when all this started, it's far worse. Um, and, and you're starting to hear rumblings from the Republicans about austerity. What does this Biden economic team sound like when the drum beats of austerity are coming, which has got to be the most insane thing one ever heard uh, in, in such a moment. But we knew this was going to happen because this is what the Republicans always do. This is the Republican playbook, basically, for the last 20 years. Okay, come in. I mean, essentially since Reagan too, come in, run up deficits, cut taxes. Um, you know, I mean, this is the thing. I've, I was arguing the other day, my husband and I were watching The Crown, and I have a, I, Mark, I wonder if you would share this. I have a kind of a, odd admiration in some ways for Thatcher relative to Reagan, because at least she was a real conservative, you know, yeah. like she, she, she did both sides of things. Reagan was basically a, ta he, he's like cut taxes and ran budgets up. And then that has been the playbook for, for Republicans ever since. And then they leave it to Democrats to be the one, I mean, they've been incredibly clever about this. And I hope, actually, I hope that Biden's comms people will somehow find a way to message this and say, gosh, guys, you know, thanks for leaving us with this huge deficit. Um, we're going to find some productive ways to grow ourselves out of it. And here's what they are. I mean, they can't just be be in this position once again of being portrayed as the, the fiscally imprudent party. I just go ahead, Mark. agree with everything. I mean, so I wrote a book a wee while ago called Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea. And a dangerous idea is defined as one that is immune to empirical refutation. And this is just it. Doesn't matter how many times you show it doesn't work. It doesn't matter how many times you say that the state is not like a household. Mark Blythe doesn't get to issue his own dollars. Mark Blythe can't owe himself money, right? Doesn't matter. Just it's that's the debt. It's the national credit card that's maxed out, right? They do this stuff time and time again. The trick, as well as messaging the way that Rana just said, is the other one: is to turn around and say it doesn't matter. And I'll give you an example of how to do this. Every now and again, I give talks to the U.S. Navy. Don't ask why. I'll have to kill you. And I went into a room once, and it's a whole bunch of you know relatively senior military officers, uh, and also you know civilian counterparts. And I said, right. So the main constraint on the U.S. Navy getting the toys it wants is the budget deficit and the debt. The debt at this point was I don't know sixteen trillion or something like that. And I said, if you could have the national debt with a single pen stroke, if you could sign it away, would you do it? And every single one of them said yes. I said, congratulations, ladies and gentlemen, you've just destroyed half of national savings. Mm. That's what it is, right? Nobody forces you to buy a treasury bond, and yet there seems to be insatiable demand to the point that 10 years out, the payback is negative. You get less back 10 years than you put in now, and people are still buying them. So you just basically have to keep on the, this is a bullshit problem, rather than say, thanks for running up those deficits, because that implies it's a problem, and it's landed on our lap. You actually have to go one step further and say, no, no, this is a bullshit problem. Let's sort this out once and for all. If you then look at public opinion, 
the COVID pan this is one of the strategic mistakes that the Democrats made, I think, in the election. The COVID pandemic and beating Trump over the head with that was always number three. Number one is the economy. Mm. But I'll tell you what, the national debt is never more than number seven. So if the Republicans want to make their main thing the national debt, let them. It doesn't really matter. People are not lying awake at night worrying about the national debt. They never do. They don't know what it is. That's actually, it's a good point, particularly in the midst of a pandemic and the aftermath of a pandemic, which is going to be the next two to five years of, you know, massive tech-related job dislocation, um, all the things that that we knew were going to come in the next 15 years. And we're sort of like, gosh, we should probably retrain for a 21st century workforce at some point. We should probably reinvent secondary school and tertiary education at some point. Well, that's all now going to be boom, have to be done. And I think it will, I think you're right, Mark, that it will be very difficult. Um, and particularly for that 30% that Trump got, that was, you know, the, the, the poorest part of the country going to be tough to sell them on. This is a good thing. Good time to, you know, tighten our budgets, boys. Uh, Mark, Rana, what are you got? What are you both hearing from Wall Street? Because when I listen to Bloomberg radio, I'm hearing like hedge fund CEOs and others all saying kind of what you're saying. Don't worry about the deficit right now. You know, if spend as much as you got to spend to stop this depression getting deeper. I mean, is that a reflection of where Wall Street's at? Because if it is, then it may not matter what the Republicans say, because they're not going to want to defy some of the, you know, the preponderance um, of Wall Street opinion. I would say that there's a there's a short term and then a kind of a mid to long term opinion. And the short term opinion is, I you know, I think pretty much the opinion that, that any sane person has, which is that we're going to need some stimulus. We, we you know, this is a this is a massive um, we're going to have a massive second recession. We're going to need some help to get out of it. Um, after that, it starts to get more interesting. Um, and you see, I think we've mentioned this on this show before, you see two bets in the market, stocks and gold. Mm-hmm. And gold, of course, is the bet that there will at some point be a reckoning um, uh, that if not runaway inflation, you'll simply see a devaluation of the dollar and a, and a collapse in U.S. stocks that will be essentially about um, a loss of trust in America. It will be about not so much even the Biden administration, but just our whole political machinery. And have we actually tipped over into oligopoly? Are we Zimbabwe? Are we, you know, um, the Weimar Republic? Well, okay, then at some point in history tells us that your currency will collapse and investors will go elsewhere. Now, the, the, the answer, of course, has always been where else can they go? You've got the dollar. You know, there's no digital Mark Blythe um, Bitcoin currency available for purchase, although I would purchase some, Mark. I, I just want to tell you if, if, if they were there. Um, I think that this is where I might diverge a little bit from some progressives. I do worry a bit that we're at an interesting point, a, frankly, a healthy point for the global economy where there's there are more games in town or they're the beginning of more games in town. You've got China saying, you know, we have our own um, ecosystem. We want to be separate from your supply chains by 2035. And we're also going to insist that all of our trading partners use use digital RMB. That's slowly but surely going to create a pull away from the dollar. Who the heck knows what's going to happen in Europe, you know, whether they'll get their acts together. But if they do, then the euro will potentially strengthen relative to the dollar. You've also got crypto um, emerging in fascinating ways. I mean, PayPal allowing people to trade Bitcoin. That's kind of interesting. 
I think a lot of big deal investors I know now are looking at Bitcoin as something that's not going away. And now I would I want to have Bitcoin bonds and, you know, with no central bank underwriting them? Eh, not so sure. But it's what I'm trying to say here is that the world is not flat. And I think that the dollar is not no longer going to be the only game in town. And that's not a problem right now. It may not be a problem in five years, but it will be a challenge at some point. So I'll just, as usual, amplify that and take it in a slightly different direction. Actually, no, it's the same direction. It's just amplifying it. So I was forever the biggest dollar bull, right? Every asset in dollars. What's the point in being anything else? I get paid in the global reserve assets. Sod you, right? Dead straightforward. And then I started to do exactly what you're saying. I started to rethink this because it's not just the case that there's nowhere else to go. The, the really big one here is central bank digital currencies. And there's lots of good reasons for having them. And there's a proposal in the Fed for the digital greenback, right? Everybody's doing this in part because Libra, remember that one, scared the bejesus out of the central banking community because if you really had that, then you lose control of monetary policy. But also because the surveillance state in China wants to know what every transaction is on so they can award you social credit points, right? Now, they are going to happen. Those two things are going to happen. And in response, there probably will be a digital greenback because if you want to fight a recession, all this nonsense about haggling in Congress and sending people paper checks is just it's nonsense. Wouldn't it be better if you basically had a Treasury Direct account with a reverse flow? That's a digital greenback. It goes straight into your bank account. No questions asked. Shortens the recession. Way cheaper than QE, etc. So suddenly there's all these forces pushing in one direction. Now, Europe becomes an interesting fulcrum here. Here's why. Had Trump won, Europe would have been scared and they would have done more to get their act together, mm. both fiscally and politically. Now that Biden's in, they're like, ah, oh, they're off. So you can see this, right? Basically, the rule of law linkage that they were trying to beat up Poland and Hungary with, that's going out the window. Merkel's huh. not going to use any special instruments to get around them, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so yeah, Europe's yeah. back to business as usual. Now, they have the capacity. They simply don't have the will to issue debt. They also don't have, because they really are just a bunch of small open economies, relatively speaking, they can't run the deficits necessary to issue the type of volumes through having a large imports that you do with the dollar. That's what gives dollar liquidity as global, as global footing. Does China have that? China has one weak point. If you open up its capital accounts fully, all the investor class in China wants to leave. They'd rather be in Vancouver. And we know this because in 2015, nearly a trillion dollars left the country when they loosened up. So they can't really flood the market unless it's digital renminbi, right? And that's why those digital currencies are going to become really important. And that stuff can move real fast. So, you know, this I think you're exactly right. And people are not focusing on this. This is where you could see dollar weakness. And to return this back to the conversation of sort of, you know, the deficit politics, et cetera, et cetera. It's not about what Wall Street thinks in the following sense. Think about Brexit. There isn't a single part of British industry or finance thinks this is a good idea. And yet the political classes have spent six years wrapping themselves up in it as the economy craters. The Republicans have basically become a kind of financial death cult because what they represent are all the declining sectors, steel, mm -hmm. coal, mm -hmm. extraction, uh, forestry, all the basically the heartland red state industries, right? Farming, et cetera, et cetera. That's not declining, but the other ones are. If you take the resources of the future, I think it's resources of the future map of the states that have the most scope for a carbon tax mm. and take the 2020 electoral map, it's a perfect fit. Mm. So essentially what the Democrats represent to these states, forget Wall Street for a minute, is a mortal threat to their carbon-based business model and way of life. 
And the Democrats have no real way of selling that to them other than, yeah, we really are out to get you. So I think that's why the Republicans react in the way they do to anything the Democrats are doing. It's a mortal threat to their business model. To hell with Wall Street. I just want to follow up on the point that Mark was making about the importance of cryptocurrencies and how many cryptocurrencies there might be, central bank issued or otherwise. Um, this makes me think that there's going to be a lot of very interesting geopolitical alliances that, that could now happen. Trade deals between, say, not the U.S. and Europe, but California and Europe, because maybe Californian regulation and their ability to use crypto to um, satisfy GDPR uh, requirements are going to allow commerce in a way that, say, you know, the entirety of the U.S. can't get around. This is going to keep happening all over the world. And it's it's going to be an interesting, fascinating spaghetti bowl. I, I hope it doesn't get too messy um, of, of currencies and trade and I, we are just not going to reset to old school globalization, I don't think. I think that's that's something I feel quite quite uh, sure about. Uh, let me get back to this idea, the uh, issue of the Biden cabinet. The, the thing that concerns me the most of all of this concerns me, not disappoint me, because I didn't have any great expectations. Biden is who Biden is, and the balance of forces are what they are, and so... He wasn't going to, this wasn't going to become the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren cabinet. Um, I thought he might have throw, thrown a bone and maybe there still will be one, but, but I'm not surprised if there isn't either. What concerns me is, is the climate issue. John Kerry may bring it a name, but he doesn't bring a, bo a bold vision. The, the Biden climate plan, as announced, is heavily dependent on uh, carbon uh, sequestration and, and, and carbon cleaning, none of which is proven to be very effective. Um, and, and we are running out of time. We've been emailing back and forth, the three of us, uh, in the last few days. Uh, Mark accused me of publishing stuff that's so pessimistic that he feels like uh, buying a tent in New Zealand. I offered to get him past when we build the Canada Wall. We, I'm trying to get Rana and Mark through the wall with a special dispensation for guests of the analysis. And he can help grow mangoes north of uh, Kingston, Ontario. Uh, but, but all that being said, we, the situation is so urgent. Uh, this net zero target by 2050, uh, we just ran a piece that I think that's what triggered Mark. Yes. Net, net zero is just can mean anything. And the problem with net zero is you can build in an expectation that you're going to clean carbon out of out of fossil fuel, but it's not happening. Most of the scientists I'm seeing from the IPCC and otherwise say, of course, you want to clean carbon out of the air as much as you can. Regenerative agriculture, you know, a zillion trees. But that's all in the context of phasing out fossil fuel sooner than later. The Biden plan doesn't really call for phasing out fossil fuel, except maybe decades from now. And if the science I'm reading is correct, we don't have decades. I'm not saying it's overnight, but it's got to be sooner than later. Uh, doesn't this concern both of you? 
Um, well, let me jump in first. I, I want to say, I think we've got to be careful because Biden, I mean, all right, stepping back, if Obama had a lot on his plate when he took over, I mean, Biden has got literally the entire planet on his plate and climate is the biggest deal. But to go to what Mark said, very smart point that Mark made earlier about fossil fuels being the Republicans' um, business model and their only game plan. Well, guess what? A lot of those Trump voters were coal miners and folks that worked in fossil fuel-related industries that are unionized. And they look, and this is where it gets complicated, they look and they say, gosh, you know, fossil fuel jobs pay 50% above the American medium. Those clean tech gigs pay two bucks above average, which P.S. This is like something that drives me crazy. I hear all these Europeans talking about their socially conscious business models. And then I see these Scandinavians treating the U.S. like their own private China and sending, you know, these clean tech jobs over non-unionized. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, we, we are literally kind of the outsourced labor for for these European companies that would have to pay 35 bucks an hour for these jobs. So that's a trade issue. And I hope somebody's paying attention to that because that that should definitely be one of the chits Biden should call in um, since since Europe wants a new trade deal. But he has got to bring the industry and but more importantly, the labor that works in the industry along with him. And that's why he's soft peddling it right now. I suspect what I would like to see happen is a much more hard hitting plan to say we're going to move in the course of five years, these coal miners into retrofitting solar panels and um, the, the highest quality windows, which by the way, I mean, just if we literally in America, if we just put on better windows and doors and turn, turn the light outs, we would cut 50% of emissions. So like, you know, that could solve a lot of unemployment and some emissions issues right there. Um, that's what we need to see articulated right now. How are we going to get the people working in the fossil fuel industry into jobs in clean tech and make that economically viable? Now, let's add to that that the uh, not the Biden administration, the Biden campaign effectively decided to exclude the American working class from its coalition. So you've got a bunch of people who have a good reason over multiple electoral cycles to not believe a word the Democrats say, because it all goes to the coast and it all stays with people like them. They never come here. Ohio used to be solidly, solidly blue. Now that's just over, right? So elections are decided by, what was Pennsylvania ultimately? 21,000 votes. Yeah. So let's have a huge, bold plan that scares the bejesus out of everybody who isn't sitting in Boston in a post-carbon economy job. Because right. that's essentially what that is. So right. there's an imperative, and I'm not denying the imperative, but then there's the way that we set up our societies to deal with conflicts over ends and to deal with conflicts over distribution. And both of them are fraying. And when you have uh, the ability to basically block, which is the Republicans' superpower, and then you have the Democratic ability, which I'm not sure they have a superpower, but if they do have a superpower, it's to build fractionalized coalitions that don't convince any of its own members they're serious. I don't see how you get forward with that. It, the Democratic superpower is contempt. Yes, exactly. So, so I, I just, you know, I think that when we deal with America as it really is, and its way of adjudicating values and dealing with conflicts, we're just massively ill-equipped to deal with a carbon transition. It's not the imperative. It's like telling somebody who's lost their legs because they smoked, they smoked and they've got diabetes that they really shouldn't be doing that. They don't give a shit. They've lost their legs and they've got diabetes. Of course they're going to have another cigarette. 
<laughs> I mean, it's kind of obvious the only thing that can and should be done, and, the, and and you can see the kind of money that's being thrown at the economy when they want to, except most of it went to defend assets instead of going to ordinary people, is to guarantee the current wages of fossil fuel workers until they can transition to jobs with similar right. wages. It's, right. it's, it's, it's obvious. Right. Yeah. So why and not do a, it? And, because then they really have to get serious about phasing out fossil fuel, and they don't want to piss off the fossil fuel companies. Yeah. Or, the, more, the, or more importantly, that's socialism because the market no longer dictates wages. And, and that is my next question. Because without more socialism, we're clearly a mixed economy, but without more socialism and central planning, not just central planning to save the stock market and assets, because there's tons of central planning. If obviously, one of the biggest pieces of central planning is the Pentagon. But all that being said, there's no way out of this crisis without it. But if BlackRock's in their ear, that ain't what BlackRock wants to hear, even though BlackRock gets how serious the urgency is. Larry Fink had this whole thing, <clears throat> excuse me, where he was telling the companies they invest in, you're, you're going to have to have a accountability. You're going to have to have some green measurement, except the green measurement didn't mean anything. All you had to do was measure. You didn't, it wasn't, there was a bar you had to hit with the measurement. You just had to measure. So it's not like they don't know, but the, the, it's almost practically, if you read BlackRock's documents, they almost come up to the edge of saying, we can't do it without the government making us do it. But of course, they don't want to say that because they don't want that kind of government intervention. You know, it's interesting that you say that. You're making me think of um, a few months ago, actually during the primary season, I was looking at Elizabeth Warren's um, industrial policy plans and Marco Rubio's industrial policy plans. There's not that much air between them. It's really interesting. A lot of Republicans are... Well, not a lot, but the, the economic nationalists are kind of walking right up to that line and they're not using the third rail terms, but they're essentially saying, shit, we have, sorry, I don't know if I can say that on this podcast, but oh, yeah, oh, you can say more than that. Oh, really? Fantastic. Oh, yeah, okay. this... I didn't realize I was so unleashed. Boy, I'm going to get much audio. Um, uh, that, uh, that, that, that you are going to have to have some coordination. And here's where it gets interesting. And, and Mark, Mark and Paul, you can tell me I'm, I'm being Pollyanna-ish, but you know, I too speak to folks at places like the Navy Postgraduate Institute, and I'm fascinated by the overlap between security hawks, defense hawks, and the AOCs of the world. I mean, you know, I literally just got through um, doing a uh, a war game where uh, it was clear that green stimulus could help rebuild the industrial base and put uh, a lot of Trump voters back to work in ways that would both secure our economics and our politics that would be good for national security. I mean, it is really fascinating when you've got a general saying basically the same thing that AOC is. Now, we just have to make sh make people understand that that message is that those things are not inconsistent with each other. And also, like socialism, capitalism, there's just different ways of regulating the markets in different people's interests. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And we just have to figure out how the in which interest groups are we talking about here? Well, that's a hell of a statement because that's what it's all about, the conflict of interest between 
you know, that, the Black Rocks of the world and and everybody else. But I mean, the markets are regulated for them right now, as you said. We have socialism; it's for them, you know. It's it's, uh, and we need to we need to have it for a broader group. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a slightly bigger problem lurking in the background. I think we've spoken about this before, which is we spent we didn't spend, but basically for the past forty years, the administrative state uh, Bannon's bet noir of the United States has been hollowed out. So, you know, I, I believe it was the case that part of the reason the Florida unemployment system crashed was because they couldn't actually deal with the workflow given they were running 486DX computers from the 1980s. So, and also, you know, it used to be the case that these were well-paid jobs, these were highly skilled. You thought about the FDA, you thought about several of the independent agencies, really, really smart people, career scientists, et cetera, went and they're leaving in droves. And they have been doing, but even before the Trump administration went, and some because Congress won't pay for it, right? Think about the fact that you know the IRS is down twenty percent on its budget, and it spends, I think, twenty five percent of its audits are basically EITC people. Billionaires don't get audited. It's as simple as that. So we have an astonishingly dysfunctional, counterproductive state, which is incredibly weak and fragile. And now we're going to tell it to do a Green New Deal. That scares the shit out of me. Because nothing will delegitimate that faster than the failure of those state mm -hmm. institutions, right? If you if you want to go down that road, you're basically signing up to a kind of high tech green Stalinism a la G. And also, let's be perfectly frank that the other way to think about this is the giant hockey stick of carbon doom is really all going to be determined in East Asia and South Asia because that's where the people are, that's where the growth is. Mm -hmm. It's all about those parts of the world growing faster than us and trying to get all the same stuff that we have that's ultimately going to determine this. It's not actually even the United States that's the biggest emitter anymore. It's China. Then it's India coming up. Add that whole area together, it swamps. Western Europe's been on decline. They're going to decline even further. None of this is within our control. It's arrogant of us to assume that it's within our control. But what I do worry about is we just need a plan. We just need the right people doing this massive project in the United States. Uh, really, I mean, central banks are filled with reasonably competent people, and they can't even agree on what inflation is anymore. And we're going to take some. We're going to take something as complex as like literally the biggest energy transition in human history, and we're going to try and do it with four eighty six computers and a bunch of people who hate it. That really scares me. Ah, oh, come on, that's that's exaggeration. Is it? No, no, really. Why? Why is that an exaggeration? Why? Well, first of all, was there some fantastic state in the 30s when Roosevelt did it? I know it's a more complicated economy and all the rest, but they created these things and they brought in talented people. There's tons of talented people they in built, government they now. They built those institutions for the first time at a time when you could basically take 10,000 male bodies and put them in tents in the middle of the desert and tell them to build a dam. It's a pretty straightforward project. Decarbonization is leagues more complex. Well, but wait, there's a third way here. And in fact, I think it's the more historically appropriate way, which is that you think of it not as, all right, we have to have a top-down detailed government structure about how to decarbonize the economy that, that uh, balances the needs of myriad uh, interest groups across the world. How about just, all right, we have a we have a unemployment problem. We have a burgeoning debt problem, which depending on our politics, we may or may not care about. I personally do. There are only three ways to deal with those sorts of problems. Grow your way out of it, uh, austerity, mm -hmm. or monetize the debt. 
Um, I don't want austerity at this moment. And I don't want monetization of debt because I think it'll eventually collapse the economy. So how do you grow your way out? Well, history tells us the best way to have a shared, uh, you know, what, what my source and friend Bill Janeway would call a productive bubble is for the government to say, we are going to support X new transformative technology, the railroads, the internet, and then we're going to we're going to subsidize it with basic federal research, but we're also going to put a floor under it. We're going to do land grants. We're going to we're going to basically make the private sector comfortable that this is the future, and 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 regulation is going to support that. We're not going to tell you exactly how it's going to play out, but we're going to make it clear that there's a floor here, and then boom, we're off. We're literally off to the races, or off to building the train rails, or off to building the commercialized internet. That could be done with clean tech today, and that would be a smart thing to do. Here, here. Woo! I got it. I got an unadulterated like yes from Mark. I love it. No, no, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think that the way that we think about this in the United States is utterly peculiar. Uh, the only way we can talk about decarbonization is by reference to a bunch of industrial experiments, most of which, if you include the first part of the New Deal, were a total disaster, which mm. happened 90 years ago. Like, that's the only thing that we can talk about. I mean, this is the country that basically put a rocket on the put people on the moon. This is the country that basically has invented most of the tech that's kept us going for 40 years. And that has been a public-private partnership. It's never been done by the state. This idea that, like, we need the state to do this is historically just not true. The United States doesn't do this. It's never done this. You, ca you can't think it's going to happen with the marketplace without the state. I didn't say it was, but you were saying it was the state without the marketplace. No, I wasn't. I, I, I don't yes, think it's historically possible right now to think that you can get that kind of government institutions and planning in this political environment. Do I think it's theoretically possible? I, I, I do, because I see it in Canada. I see what's publicly owned here, and I see the, the Le Public Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Oh, God, no, please, please, no, no. Your selection is awful. Why is that? Oh, my God, your selection of wines uh, is truly head. Oh, no, 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 you can't. No, yes, that's absolutely true. No, no. Done. They, Done. They've done a study. There's been a study comparing the publicly owned Liquor Control Board of Ontario to what happened to privatization in Alberta. And the selection of wines in Ontario kills Alberta. I don't live in Alberta. I live in Providence. And trust me, it's better than what's in your public shops. Um, no. Mark, we will do a test. We will have to do a, te yes, a drinking test. Yes, and, we will. Because the only this, this kind of uh, can only be settled by actually swallowing the stuff. I You'll agree. bring two or three of your best. I'll bring two or three from the publicly owned. The point is there are publicly owned institutions all over the world. Even, even state-owned hospitals have in the United yeah. States have better mortality rates than privately owned hospitals. Yes, I agree. So, so yeah, there's, you lost just, me at wine shops. Well, Mark, if you keep we'll, we'll make up for that. Fighting with Paul, you're going to end up squatting on a in a tent on Peter Thiel's property in New Zealand. You're never. Yeah, gonna really. Yeah, that's true. I need to, I take it all back. It all doesn't. It, it. The other thing that the state could do if we had a progressive government, which we're not getting anytime soon because the people's movement's way too weak. But you can buy this expertise. You can buy. A, Oh God! You could buy Cox, uh, you know, a competitor to Walmart. You could buy Amazon. Uh, there's lots of expertise that you could do if you nationalized one of the banks, which people have called for when the banks are collapsing. There's even Soros, Soros called for that in those seven oh eight. 
I mean, you can get that expertise if it's not in the government now. I'm not saying expertise isn't a problem. Certainly it is. But how much expertise is it to create the, uh, the, the, the means for retrofitting buildings and having contractors all over the country out doing it? And, and I don't, it doesn't have to be a direct government employment plan, but could be to train people to retrofit buildings. I don't think we should overcomplicate uh, investment in windmills, investment in solar. Uh, and some, a lot of progressive economists have called for, you know, buying, the government actually buys fossil fuel companies so they can plan an orderly phasing out of fossil fuel. I, I don't know that any of this is politically possible, which is why in our emails, I'm pretty damn pessimistic about where this all goes. But I don't think it's impossible if people could elect that kind of a government. Sadly, we don't have that kind of government. So we then have to have a plan B. And I think the plan B is what Rana is talking about. What, the tent in New Zealand? <laughs> yeah, the, the tent in New Zealand. No, that essentially you have to basically put a floor under the transition cost for the private sector. Right? We do, we do pretty much all the stuff we do, we do through this thing called the private sector. And that encompasses everything from me putting solar panels on my roof and selling it back to the grid if I'm allowed, right? That's a that's an issue, right? Uh, all the way through the nonprofit sector and charities, right to the most rapacious capitalist business, right? This is the private sector. Ninety percent of our economic activity takes place there. No one actor there can bear the risk of the transition. They're just not big enough. The only way to do it is to socialize the risk. That's the real meaning of socialism: is to socialize the risk. And if you socialize the risk of the transition, they will leap across it. Because this is the greatest investment opportunity of the 21st century. You either get this, are you all, when I talk to finance audiences, I call this the covered option of all time. And here's what I mean by this. If nobody invests, we all die. Symmetrical payoff. If you invest just one or two things and one of the two are the right things, you will basically be as rich as whoever you want to be. And we might not die. So a massive asymmetric payoff. If everybody invests because the costs are socialized, we will get somewhere. And it will be a massive payoff. So the key thing, the socialism word here is about the costs of the transition. And if that includes ownership structures, trust me, I'm much in favor of certain forms of public ownership and new forms, distributed forms, a whole lot. Citizens Wealth Fund, sign me up, right? But the key thing here is what socialism means is incentivizing and ensuring those costs so that that transition can be made. If you don't do that, that's, that's where we're standing. That's the standing on the edge of the cliff as the cliff collapses. Yeah, I agree with all that. I, th I think we all agree on that. And I think some, you know, some of the left that may not agree with that, it's completely unrealistic because we are not going to get to a climate solution without socializing the risk, including for the fossil fuel companies and other investors, because there just isn't time. I mean, you know, if we had 100 years to evolve this, maybe you could get to something that doesn't require it, but we don't have the time for anything else. Um, oddly enough, like Rana, I've also been in those conversations with uh, senior military people and found myself thinking that they're not that far away from AOC, except that if you tell them that, they still want to reach for the revolver. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you both for joining us. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm -hmm.